Hi, everybody. This is Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. We are going to talk about brain power, and we're going to have you come out of this looking like an extra in Megamind, this giant light bulb-shaped Klingon forehead of intense intelligence. I have Hank Pelletier. He's a humanitarian writer, editor, speaker, and producer. He writes on uh, futurist and transhumanist topics. He's the author of several books, including Brighter Brains, 225 Ways to elevate or injure IQ, which is great because I've, uh, Hank, I've got, I've got three minutes per topic, so we should have a tasty nine-hour nine show. I'm very, very excited about that. And also, <laughs> why is the IQ of Ashkenazi Jews so high? So uh, thanks so much, Hank, for taking the time today. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. So just to begin with, I always want to be sensitive to where audiences are coming from, and there has been a fair amount of discussions, uh, both in the academic and lay people circles, that IQ is um, nonsense. It only measures test-taking test ability. It's wildly culturally um, biased and so on. So I wonder if we could just, before we talk about how to improve something, let's talk about what it is and what it measures. So uh, let's just have a brief uh, chat about uh, IQ uh, as a whole and whether it, it is relevant and what it claims to measure. Sure. Um, I mean, the IQ test is just a test. It's, it correlates really closely to, say, a GRE test or a SAT test and, and various other tests. It's simply a test that measures your problem-solving ability. And I, and I do understand that people get really upset uh, that, that people are categorized and given a number on their IQ, but it, it is... I mean, I think it's a, a very valid sort of test. And, and everybody has test. You know, our children go to school and they're tested and they get into college based on SAT scores and they get into private schools based on their scores. And so uh, the IQ is basically a, a, a test like other tests. Well, and I also wanted to mention that people think maybe because they're still in school, maybe they think that testing ends after you leave school. But every time you're employed by someone, it's a daily test of are you producing more value than you're consuming? Every time you try to make a sale, you're tested to find out whether you make the sale or not. Every time you ask a woman out on a date, you're tested to see whether she'll say yes. Or like The tests or, or comparative ability exams don't just end because there's not somebody standing over you with a clipboard. And I think this is one of the reasons why... IQ tests seem to correlate so strongly with life success as a whole. Right. I, I, I should also explain that there's a IQ test test a wide variety of different skills. There's a very interesting one called the Ravens, uh, which simply ha uh, measures your ability to look at patterns. Like say you'll look at four different shapes uh, or figures and you have to determine which one doesn't belong there. So that's like a completely nonverbal, you don't have to have any kind of uh, education or anything to do that. It's like a visual spatial kind of test. So that's, so that's one where you can't say there's any kind of uh, cultural bias, for example. And then there's, and then um, people are tested on, on their mathematical ability and their verbal ability. And, and I, I think I, I actually find it very interesting that some cultures uh, score extremely high in verbal IQ and not in uh, visual spatial and others score really high in visual, spatial, and not in verbal uh, in terms of that. Well, and, and this uh, does go to some degree, and, and nobody knows for sure the degree to which what is commonly called G, which is the measure of general intelligence rather than specific learned application, the degree to which it's genetic or, or cultural, nobody knows. But as far as I understand it, uh, East Asians tend to score very high on 
uh, visual spatial, which of course, you know, the, the sort of oriental engineer is kind of the cliche, mm -hmm. uh, whereas uh, uh, Ashkenazi Jews tend to score extraordinarily high on, exactly on verbal, right. which is why they're not as highly represented in places like engineering or architecture or things like that. Right, that's exactly right. Uh, Ashkenazi Jews score only slightly above the average in uh, visual spatial, as I remember. And I think that um, East Asians only score slightly above average in verbal as well. So it does measure something real. It's mm -hmm. not necessarily culturally biased. I remember my first introduction to the IQ test was, uh, one of the questions was, you know, what is a, re a regatta is like, you know, and of course for a lot of inner city kids, when I was growing up, regatta, which is of course an upper middle class boat race <laughs> run yeah. by wasps as a whole, they'd be like, regatta, I don't know, is that part of a, the name of a police album? That's as far as <laughs> most people would get. But I think a lot of work has been done since then to try to really make it as accessible as possible. And in some of the IQ tests that I've reviewed, yeah, it's just, it's like looking at the Mandela patterns of Jung's or something. They're just looking for ways in which, um, you know, guess the next, the next image or the next um, um, glyph in this kind of sequence. It doesn't require any particular reading ability. Uh, you're just looking for pattern. And some of the math stuff is find the number patterns. Like what's the next number in this sequence according to the previous ones? And that, again, is trying to measure raw processing power independent of preparation for a particular test. Right, right. I actually think uh, that the IQ, pe people's ability in the IQ test can be very fluid. Although I took it um, three times when I was in my teens, I scored about the same each time, uh, around 125, 126. Then when I took the GRE, which they can actually, they actually translated into an IQ score, I scored a little bit higher. But since then, I took it about six months ago just to see how well I would do. And I originally did well in the, I, I originally did as well as I did in the IQ test because my math ability was, was pretty good. Uh, but when I took it over again, since I haven't done any math in about 40 years, uh, my math ability was terrible. But I, I decided upon writing as a profession. So now my verbal ability has made up for my math ability, which has declined. So I, I think it's pretty fluid. Well, and I certainly think that there are those famous studies of the London cabbies. They did these MRIs of the London cabbies and yeah. found that their spatial and inner sort of GPS map representational areas were huge. Now, of course, it's really tough to figure out the cause and effect of that, right? So, I mean, in, in your example, clearly being a writer helped with your language abilities, but we don't know if the cab drivers had these great geospatial abilities in their brains, which is why they continued to be cab drivers where other people didn't, maybe it enhanced it slightly. But the degree to which the brain is a muscle that can be enhanced by work or the degree to which you're drawn towards that which your brain is already good at is, is something I think that's still being teased out. Right. There was actually a recent study from uh, UC Davis uh, that I just uh, wrote an article on. It's actually um, it's about what curiosity does to the brain. Uh, when you're curious, you release dopamine, which um, it sort of infuses it infuses the hippocampus with. Uh, dopamine and it allows the hippocampus to uh, memorize facts easier. So I, I, I and and so that I think that's what happened with these uh, London cab drivers that, um, or they were just simply impelled to like learn what they had to learn, and so they actually did retain a lot more information. And I, and I think we're all doing that all the time. Oh, and I certainly for for what I do, Hank, the the rush of a new connection or a new idea or a new understanding. Uh, is like, 
I mean, I might as well be a Wall Street broker in a bathroom with a rolled up $100 bill and a hooker's butt with cocaine on it because it's really quite a high and that's what I'm in pursuit of. And my particular kind of mentality is uh, I'm always want to do something new, find some new information. That's where mm-hmm. I get my greatest dopamine hit. So uh, it is, uh, I-, I can't claim any credit for that. It's just I'm, you know, I'm a <laughs> dopamine sniffing hound, I guess, like, uh, like most of us. Um, so I think we can sort of say it does measure something in the brain. I've read, and, and this is what I wanted to talk to you about before we get into sort of how to raise or lower it. Lowering it, I get. I mean, we've talked a lot in this show about things like corporal punishment, uh, a lack of breastfeeding, and so on. That Those seem to shave off significant IQ points. I mean, estimates of four to five IQ points down for corporal punishment, another three to four to five down for not breastfeeding for the recommended 12 to 18 months, and so on. But uh, so I, I get that you can lower it. Um, mm-hmm. But my question is the degree to which it can be raised uh, is something that's because some of the research that I've read says it's sort of like height, you know, like if you don't give a kid enough food, he'll grow up stunted. But if you give him extra food, he won't get taller than he would have been uh, according to the genetics. And so uh, that's sort of my my question is the degree to which, you know, giant programs like Head Start in the U.S. where billions and billions of dollars were spent trying to raise IQ and Charles Mulley's arguments basically that, that you can't do much to raise it or we don't know ways in which we can generally raise it. We know ways we can harm it. Uh, that's where I'm sort of really fascinated by, by your approach about raising it. Uh, so um, some people say, well, the female brain matures sort of 22, 23, male brain 29, 30, and so on. And so until that point, there's going to be a lot of variation, both between the genders and even within the genders, because people's brains are just maturing at different rates. But I've seen a lot of studies that show that their IQ seems to be pretty stable after brain maturation. Uh, is that not something you found to be the case? Well, um, I, I have to agree with you. There's a lot more research on, on how to harm the brain than there is on how to actually uh, improve the brain. Uh, there, are, there are smart drugs. But those, are, those just give you sort of temporary clarity and things. Um, there is a Austrian, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Heiner Rinderman. He's a Austrian uh, guy who writes a lot about IQ. And I, and I, I, really, I really believe him. Uh, he actually thinks that education is it's kind, of a, it's kind of a boring topic, but he actually believes education is the best way to raise your IQ. And uh, in my own experience, because I have two daughters, uh, I had one daughter who was, her IQ was tested and it was, it was very, it was very average, which actually, you know, wasn't actually good enough for my wife and I. <laughs> um, so, uh, we actually, so you got battery cables and, uh, yeah. some jolt colas and right. We put her in a school that had, had a, a smaller, uh, smaller amount of students per classroom and she had excellent teachers and she, she has transformed from being a, um, fifth grade B student to being a ninth grade A student, uh, getting into, you know, extremely good, uh, exclusive high school. And what I think what Heiner Rinderman says, he's, he actually thinks that good education can elevate your IQ by up to five points a year, which seems absolutely incredible. I mean, I, you can't do that every year, but you know, I get a lot of email from people, um, because of the books I I, I've read, I've written, and I got an interesting one from Appalachia, from somebody who grew up in Appalachia, and he said, uh, "Wait, wait, I'm just sorry. Yeah. The moment you say Appalachia, I've, I've got to get out of my cliche brain. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, was it written with his mouth in crayon? 
uh, in big letters? <laughs> was there any punctuation? Were things spelt phonetically? That's completely bigoted, and I just wanted to get that out of my head before we continue. Okay, well, Appalachia, no, Appalachia. Could be a genius. I'm, I'm all with you. I think, he, I think he was actually told me that he was from Appalachia to, so that I would have that understanding of his background. But he said that he had an I, he was tested for his IQ in high school, and it was like 110. And he said it was good enough for him to get into a, um, a college, and he was retested, and it was like 125. And then he went on to grad school, and he was like tested again, and now it's like 138. So I think he has exercised his brain uh, really well with good education, and he has elevated his IQ because of it. Um, can so, I, can I just ahead. add one other thing, too? And this is sort of a pitch for... I think the approach, certainly the approach that I take, I don't want to sort of say without your permission, it's the approach that you take. But I think that raw IQ is obviously very important. But to me, if you have a good methodology for understanding the world, that's going to give you massively charged IQ. And I sort of think of before the Baconian scientific revolution uh, in the 16th century, science really hadn't advanced much since the days of Aristotle. Once you get a good methodology, then you get this unbelievable leap forward. You know, like 200 years ago, they still thought that the body was a bag of blood, that nothing, the blood didn't even move around the body. And now you can take a pig's spleen and put it up in your eyeball or like crazy stuff that's going yeah. on. I yeah. think if you have a good methodology, you get incredible traction with your brain power. And the degree to which we can help people think rationally and critically and philosophically is the degree to which IQ becomes a little less relevant because a scientist today whose average is infinitely superior in many ways to a complete genius scientist in, say, St. Augustine's time who didn't have the kind of methodology that we have now. Right, right. I, I agree with all of that. Um, I, don't, I don't really have anything to add to that. Sorry, yeah. having derailed your train of thought, let's no. <laughs> we'll get back on no. it. Um, so let's start talking about, we'll, we'll start with the bad news first. You know, I'm a kind of guy, someone comes up and says, I got good news, I got bad news. They're like, tell me the good news first so I can surf out of here on a, on a happy like, joy juice of dopamine. Were you breastfed or not? That sort of thing. I mean, yeah, yeah. So let's, let's start talking about the ways in which we can uh, break the brains before we talk about how we can uh, mold them in our own, to our own nefarious purposes. Um, breastfeeding, it seems to be uh, something that's very, very good for the developing brain. And uh, it's great to have a, uh, a mother and a, and, a, and a womb that isn't uh, full of alcohol and cigarette smoke. Those are, those are you know, that's, that would be really great. Um, you know, I, I write for uh, transhumanist blogs, and there's always a lot of talk about uh, artificial wombs, which, uh, w which are decades away probably. But I think it's interesting that this, this notion of coming up with a, um, a completely safe environment. So... Uh, so that so that would so that's really great. Um, it's great to stay away from pollutants, you know, pesticides and uh, smoking again. Um, most drugs, although marijuana is still like kind of I, I don't know. That's kind of there's like a lot of uh, scientific reports are coming in about marijuana. So I'm I'm really not. I I I have a, I have a good friend who thinks that marijuana is terrible for the developing brain, and then there's other studies that indicate that. Uh, maybe it's not, so I'm not quite sure about that. It's the uh, peyote question with regards to self-knowledge, right? I mean, some people swear by it, and other people say I was never, <laughs> my brain never worked again afterwards. So, yeah, I think that remains an up-in-the-air question. I'm sort of in between on that one. It, it didn't hurt my brain, but uh, I don't know if it did that much either. Um, so, uh, yeah, I've, I've, you know, I have a charity that works in Africa, so um, I've, I've done a lot of 
research on what hurts the brains. And also, you know, disease actually is hurts the brain. It's, it's, if, if kids have like a, you know, like a long fever or a high fever or they, or they miss like 20 days of school every semester, this, is, this isn't good. Uh, a real thing. Or there are those, uh, I think in particular, you know, the, the grim statistics uh, in IQ around sub-Saharan Africa, I've also heard could be related not just to the obvious sort of lack of nutrition, political instability, chronic stress, but also parasites that, that take nutrients away from the developing brain. Right. That's true. And malaria and tuberculosis. Yeah, these sorts of things. There is um, there's a couple of things you could do, uh, for at least for kids. Like I think taking probiotics is great. I take probiotics. If they keep you from getting sick, that has a, that'll lead to brain health. Taking a vitamin B complex uh, is probably a good idea as well. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Bulletproof Diet, David Asprey, or any of this. It's, it's like a it's like a pro-fat diet. You know, the, the brain is, I don't know what percentage, but it's a, it's a, huge, a huge percentage of the brain is fat, and the brain needs fat. So there's, a, there's, there's the, uh, the fact that things like uh, butter and coconut oil and things like this are also good for the brain. Fish oil, um, those are all excellent. Egg, exercise is great for the brain. Um, uh, I, yeah, I actually do weight training, and I find weight training to be, you know, weightlifting. I find it, I find it to be great, and I've read that it's actually very good for the brain, especially in older adults. Oh, I, I, I agree. I, I do weight training as well, and I've actually done some during shows when I haven't had a time to do, not this one, of course, but uh, <laughs> no, it is, it is great. I, I, I do it because, I mean, it's good for me, but also I get great ideas while I'm doing it. I think because my body thinks, like it panics and thinks I'm lifting a log off my broken leg or something, and it's like, okay, we'll give you some great ideas. <laughs> so uh -huh. I think it is great, uh, and of course, you know, it keeps, uh, it keeps your circulation going, uh, keeps your blood pumping, uh, which is obviously great. That's the basic food of the brain. Yeah. I know uh, you were interested in my book or my essay on um, why is the IQ of Ashkenazi Jews so high, and that's uh, that's a, a topic that I've spent quite a bit of time on, and I think per perhaps the reason that the main reason I you know I came up with twenty possible reasons why the Ashkenazi Jew would be higher, and I think perhaps the main one would just be that um, uh, literacy was stressed in Jewish culture from, you know, two, more than 2,000 years ago, that it's required, it was mandatory, and that education is simply stressed. And education is also highly stressed in, uh, in East Asia. I, I think it's very interesting that, uh, that the longtime hero of East Asia is Confucius, who is mainly regarded as, as, as simply as a teacher. I mean, we don't have any, how many, how many uh, USA teachers can we name? But he was, he was, he's revered as a teacher. And, um, and so I think, and, and even, I think, even with Confucius, uh, the, the notion of knowledge for the sake of knowledge, uh, and the, and the Jewish culture has the same thing, learning the, studying the, the Torah and the Talmud for seven years, simply because uh, educating yourself is an excellent thing to do. So I think having a culture like that, uh, instead of uh, perhaps worshiping uh, superheroes and military heroes, is, is probably... And you know, sports heroes. Sports heroes, of course. LeBron James had a great game last night, though. <laughs> yeah, but not while reading. That's, you know, that's the key. He was not listening to an audiobook or anything. Right. No, and I, th I think one of the things that you mentioned that um, I come from a, a Christian background, 
And one of the things I found really frustrating when, when reading, uh, but, but very illuminating, was, uh, and this does touch on IQ and genetics, and, and again, we don't know any particular answers. I've heard you know, estimates from 30% up to 70% of IQ is genetic in origin, the degree. That seems like too wide a spread to be particularly helpful, but there's definitely some component of it for sure. And that this twin studies have shown that for the last 100 years. So it really found, I found it fascinating when you were talking, Hank, about the degree to which marrying the rabbi was like the best. You know, if you can bag a rabbi, that's fantastic. And of course, becoming a rabbi is not pretty much the purview of people with an IQ of 85, right? I mean, it's really hard, a brain straining kind of work. And the idea that you would attempt to uh, get the, the, the best women to mate with the smartest men for a long period of time is fascinating. And then comparing that to the Catholic approach, which yeah. is like, let's take all the men who can learn Latin and Greek and, and really understand what the hell the Trinity actually means. Let's take all of those, put them in a tower and make sure they don't breed in any way, shape or form. It's like, could you dysgenically engineer things better for a thousand years than to dumb down the general population. Sorry. My ancestor is just kind of annoying sometimes. I think that, I think that's a, uh, it is a really interesting point that all the rabbis were having 12 to 16 children. The smartest person was, you know, breeding six, you know, having 16 kids. And then, well, we don't know if these Catholics were actually having kids or not, but then, you know, they weren't supposed to be having one well, 16 of them, I don't think. But, you know, another sort of in-between is where it's simply like the biggest, the biggest brute, the, the, the head of the Cossacks or something, is having 20 children. And he might just be, you know, he's strong and he's a killer and he has, you know, warrior instinct. But he is, he's not the most, perhaps not, probably not the most intellectual person in the group. It's something which we haven't seen for so long. I was reading the other day that... Up until the 20th century, the rich vastly outbred the poor. Yes. Now, quite the reverse is occurring now where, you know, it's the opening to idiocracy where the smart people are all like, ooh, I don't know if the stock market is quite right for us to have a baby. Whereas, of course, basically uh, in this Monty Python Catholic scenario, there's all of these less intelligent people squirting babies out of their armpits whenever they scratch their heads. Uh, and that kind of stuff, again, is one of these things that you know, what's going to happen in the long term with all of this. With that, that all having been said, you know, recently we had James Flynn on the show to talk about the Flynn effect where, you know, you could make the case that um, 30 IQ points have been gained in over 100, little over 100 years mm -hmm. uh, in the West. And uh, that, again, boy, if it can do that with the dysgenics of, of less intelligent people generally having more and more kids, uh, boy, imagine if we had a, <laughs> a different kind of focus on things. Yeah, I read a, a very controversial essay um, called uh, Ban Baby Making Unless Parents Are Licensed, which is, uh, uh, you know, I got all kinds of hate on that one. But it's, it's, it's what you're talking about. It's just like sort of questioning the, the notion that absolutely anybody is allowed to have as many children as they want, um, particularly if you, if you have something like a reoccurring uh, fetal alcohol syndrome birth, uh, this sort of thing. Um, I know that Singapore has enacted a eugenic eugenic laws, we just have to call them eugenic, um, you know, which is encouraging uh, people with more wealth and more education to have children and uh, giving incentives to people who are not well educated and don't have a lot of money to not have kids, like say to give them a, uh, a housing situation saying you can live here, but you, you know, you can't have any, can't have any more children. Uh, but people get very upset by that idea. 
Um, well, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but but I think rightly so. I mean, the 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 capacity to to create life is really one of the most personal and powerful capacities that we have as human beings. It's the only reason we're here is because somebody decided to do that. And uh, I'm not a big fan of eugenics in any form, but people don't look at the current system that we have and don't want to wander off into wildly political territory, but I feel I must. <laughs> but uh, uh -huh. people look at the current system that we have now and they say, well, we wouldn't want to introduce eugenics into this system. But the system itself is based upon eugenics in that we take money from people who have more resources and we give it to people who have fewer resources and we pay uh, people to have children yes. if they're poor and we yes. tax people on having children if they're rich. That is eugenics. You know, politics, politics aside, yes. that yeah. is all eugenics. I'd actually love to see a society with no eugenics, but that's a very different and I think arguably much more free society than what we have right now. I don't think adding more eugenics to deal with existing eugenics is the solution. Yeah. Uh, so, well, since you've wandered into politics, uh, I mean, I, I spent <laughs> a lot of I spent a lot of this morning reading about uh, Bernie Sanders, who has the notion of providing free education. And uh, if education is the very best thing for IQ, and um, uh, there's that whole book, Wealth of a Nation, and how it's tied to IQ. If if uh, if IQ is tied to a wealth of a nation, and IQ, and uh, education is tied to IQ, providing free education might be a, an extremely good political move. Both uh, now, just he means college, right? I mean, free college he, education. Uh, he's also into. Uh, Universal preschool, which I, which is, I, I, I also think is a good idea. You don't like that? Well, yeah. I saw you make. No, no, no. Go ahead. You, you make your case. Then I'll go ahead. Go ahead. I think there's been there's been an awful lot of studies that show that uh, universal preschool and giving kids a, giving four year olds a, a um, you know, a free education is is you know what the, the cost of preschool in the Bay Area now is two thousand dollars a month. That is a frightening amount of money. I used to actually be a preschool director, um, but the kids two thousand dollars a month. Two thousand dollars a month to send your. Does kids that include a full golden cost of your child? I assume that you get that at the end of the month because that is like a staggering amount I, of money. I don't even know if you get lunch with that. I really don't. <laughs> <laughs> what do you get? A spear and and access to the woods? Go get those squirrels, Bobby. Yeah. Wow. You find it. That's on your quite own. something. Um, so anyway, and. Uh, I think I think uh, since you've wandered into politics, I think providing uh, access to good education would be wonderful. Uh, if you don't want to do free education, you, you could at least do something like, say, in Africa, providing uh, internet access and online education. Yeah, I mean, I of course, as you know, since you read economics, free is one of these words that people use to mm -hmm. make things sound free. There's, it's not free; it has to be paid for somehow, and there's going to be taxes, and those taxes are going to be put uh, on the people who are the most intelligent. So, since intelligence is linked to IQ, and taxes tend to be progressive, you are going to tax the smartest to pay for the children of those who are less smart. And the degree to which there is genetics involved in IQ, you're going to have regressive eugenics, uh, dysgenics going on and that's sort of inescapable. What I'd love to see is, um, I'd love to see um, much, uh, a significant re reduction in tax to the point where people could afford to pay for these things. And also I think one of the reasons why, uh, I was not a daycare director, I worked in a daycare as a teenager for a couple of years. Uh, I mean, it's tough. You know, we had like 25 kids aged 5 to 10, it was myself and one other, mm -hmm. I wasn't a teacher, I was a teacher's aide, but we had, it's hard. If, you know, why, why are people going to work so, so quickly after giving birth? Well, because they're worried about money and their taxes are so high and so on. So 
rather than this platonic idea of let's give the government more control over the children, I'd love to see it where people could have the choice to stay home uh, if they wanted, because I don't think that there's any practical substitute for an engaged and involved mom, no matter how uh, well-funded the institution. Right. Or dad. I'm a stay-at-home dad, so I got to put that in there, too. I know. Uh, I I guess you could look at at, uh, providing, say, free preschool and free college as as an investment, because I guess you've seen these uh, statistics for every point that goes, point of IQ that you have gained, uh, you make a significant significant amount of of money more per year, which could be taxed. Uh, so, um, so you could look at it that way. That it's really just an investment in educating educating the population, so to improve the tax revenue, you could do that. You could, you could, but I guess. Aside, I have sort of the the moral, fundamental moral issue with shoveling money around using laws and threats of jail and stuff like that. It's sort of a fundamental moral issue. But that sort of that being aside, just from a sort of pragmatic standpoint, um, the question is always to me, well, tall people play basketball. So if we put people in a basketball team, do they get taller? Like what's the cause and what's the effect? And so there are, uh, you know, d- does putting someone into college make that person smarter. And it certainly isn't going to affect the genetic aspect of things. The degree to which it's not genetic, there probably could be some improvement. But I think there needs to be a tipping point with people where they're smart enough to know that working at college is a good idea. Like when I was at college, I remember the first two weeks, uh, some woman asked me out on a date and I said, oh, I can't because I've got an essay in six weeks and I'm starting to work at it. And she she completely thought I was blowing her off because she's like, who on earth comes to college and, <laughs> you know, in, is working on a, a six weeks away essay within two weeks of coming to college. It's like, me, that's who, me, me. Oh. Now, uh-huh. other people were, you know, how many brain cells not can I grow and flourish, but can I drown in a sea of alcoholic decadence? Uh, so, you know, I, the idea that we simply get more people into college and therefore we get a raise in IQ I I don't know. I don't know whether that's established enough. And again, if there's data to the contrary, I'm 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 real happy to. And I, I get, you know, I mean, in sub-Saharan Africa, there's massive amounts that can be done with right. regards to IQ just in, you know, but beyond that, like beyond I'm not stunted by malnutrition, how tall can I get? I wonder the degree to which that's genetic. And we may not know in our lifetimes. I'd love to know. But of course, it's such a controversial area for people to study that uh, you'd have to be kind of masochistic to to <laughs> to go into that field anyway. Yeah. I I, I know this is not a libertarian role model, but I, I do think Cuba is also interesting, which is uh, it provides free <laughs> education. And so what, what it's got is it has a surplus of, of doctors who, who go all over the world, all over South America and all over the world. And, uh, and, I'm, and I, think, I think that's great, too. It wouldn't have happened unless it was, a, unless it was free. But, um, and the, the interesting thing is, I mean, I, I thought about this just before we, we started to talk. And I, it really is fascinating because I am, uh, you know, big property rights and I'm like, no government would be ideal. Very, very utopian, like multi-generational change in the future. I think a stateless society would be the ideal. But the funny thing is that I argue for property rights, but I give away all my intellectual capital for free, you know, donations if, if people can afford it. All my books are free. So it's funny how I'm arguing for non-free education, but I give my stuff away for free. But when I went to buy your books, I had to pay for them. I mean, it's like oh, kind I'm of I'm so sorry. I could have just sent you the HTML. Idea. No, no, I don't mean that. I don't, I, I don't mind that at all. I just, I wonder if, if you think education, let me just sort of put that personal challenge to you. If education should be free, what about giving your books away? 
Yeah, uh, I, I I know people who say you're crazy. To any, anybody's crazy nowadays to actually buy a book. They just know how to get them for free. Uh, oh no! If people charge, I'll I'll pay. I mean, that's that's right. that's what you want, right? But since we did politics, I, there is a there is there are interesting studies about religion as well. Uh, Let's which do it. Indi- which indicate that uh, say people who are non-religious have generally uh, higher IQs than people who are religious, and they they've even like. Uh, taken all the religions and talked about which which religion has the the highest IQ and this sort of thing. I think Unitarians do well. Uh, uh, Jews do well. Maybe Episcopalians. It, it could be Mormons, I think, do fairly well. A lot of it could just be related to IQ. Wasps do really well, but but don't tell anyone about it because false modesty. No, I'm just kidding. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But I think that's, I actually think the religious question is really quite interesting because, um, I'm an atheist myself, a, a semi-militant atheist. I just actually started uh, with three friends. We started the first atheist orphanage in Uganda. Um, but I think that when you're educated and you're and you're given false answers, especially to like scientific questions, uh, I think that that uh, isn't particularly good for your brain development. And it's it's much better to have a uh, an education where you're um, you're taught to in, you're taught to inquire. You're, you're taught that there are no easy answers, and that all the answers aren't in yet, and then you can help find the answers. Well, you say militant, I say overly helpful um, because uh-huh. uh, I'm I'm a strong atheist uh, myself, and the, the the challenge that I find so, and the and the fact that you <laughs> are somewhat on the left, you could say, as well as being an atheist, is not wildly outside the continuum of of thought, but um, the the problem for me with, with religion in particular is that it actually makes active, rational, empirical curiosity a sin, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And so my concern is like if there's nothing more dangerous to human knowledge than the illusion of an answer, particularly when that illusion of an answer is invested in deep moral significance. Uh, because, you know, if, if I think I know where I'm going and I'm not going in the right direction, I'm going to get a lot more lost. You know, you, if you've ever had this, I'm terrible with like driving. I grew up without a car. So I'm even with a car now. Uh-huh. I don't know where the hell I am most of the time. But you ever have this way you're driving? I used to do a lot of driving for business. And you're driving and you're like, you got to get to a meeting or something. And you get this like weird, uneasy feeling like, hmm, I, 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 I'm pretty sure I should have hit this road by now. Maybe the next one. And every road that you miss, you get, it ratchets up a little bit more uneasiness, a little more uneasiness. That's a very healthy feeling, right? And, and my concern with religion is that by saying, oh, we've got these answers. Uh, and, and if you question these answers, that's immoral. You could not design you know, a deeper set of spears to sort of l- launch against the charging horses of rational passions or whatever. And um, not only is it, uh, is it wrong, like a, a waste of time and effort to question these absolutes, but it's actually immoral. And, and that, to me, would cause the brain to bounce back from the curiosity, which, as you say, is a very important building block for the brain. Right. And it's also a, a lot of religious a lot of time spent doing religious things is an utter waste of time. Like I, I, my charity works in Uganda. I work with atheists in Uganda. There's a handful of them and they have a, they have a elementary school and now they have an orphanage, but they, they talk all the time about how, you know, they have friends and and when their friends have problems, instead of using, using their, their brain to resolve the problem, they simply go to church or they go and kill a goat 
are they are they are they sit in a room and pray all day long? And 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 as we know, this is completely not constructive. And uh, and instead of instead of educating themselves or maybe like reading something and figuring out how to how to resolve the problem there. It's just such a waste of time, and and it and it's a critical waste of time. Like people will will starve, and kid the children will be whatever given away to an orphanage, and then this sort of thing. It's it's problems are much greater there than they are than they are here. If you if you if you gonna worship well, them, and say yeah, I think it's probably fair to say. I wouldn't say this is empirically true. It feels true, which is always dangerous. But I'm gonna say it anyway. <laughs> but. Um, yeah. uh, Religion, by distracting people, uh, you know, the opportunity costs of time you spend praying versus actively investigating and solving a problem rationally, scientifically, and empirically, it causes so many problems that you feel you need to go to church because your problems are so overwhelming. But because you're going to church, your problems continue to be overwhelming. So you get this cycle. Bad society can't fix it. Go to church. Bad society can't fix it. Go to church. And, and, the only way to interrupt that, I think, is with a healthy dose of, of skepticism, but that's a very tough cycle for people, people to break out of. I mean, 200 years of religious warfare uh, in the 17th, uh, 16th and 17th century in Europe killed off, like in places, a third of the population. In places in, places in Germany, up to 80% of the population got killed for religious warfare. And uh, the amount of suffering sometimes it takes for people to recognize that thinking clearly is better than superstition is one of the most appalling things that moralists see when they look at the world. Like, why do we have to suffer so much just to put two and two make four in our brains? Yes, yes, yes. I, 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 you know, I'm a transhumanist as well. Uh, I, so my, my transition went from being an, an atheist to being a transhumanist. And the, the transhumanists are the people that are, I always say that they're the... They're the ones. They're the people who want to live forever and are willing to become a robot to do it. Um, but I do think also because I'm involved in, in advancing uh, radical life extension uh, research, I think as long as people believe in um, a life, you know, uh, heaven and a life after death, I think it keeps people from um, actually taking care of perhaps taking care of their health as well as they could, or or actually like. Uh, working to guarantee that we can all have uh, uh, greatly extended lifespans, which which I think would be really wonderful. Um, well, and people often speed to get someplace fun, which is sort of <laughs> suicidal terrorist bombing in a nutshell. But there is also, of course, the problem, which is a huge problem in particular in the United States, in that you know, 30 or 40 or 50 percent of the population believe that the world is going to end in the next couple of decades. And the degree to which that is going to have an effect on things like national debt, uh, foreign policy, militarization, food consumption, use of resources. I mean, if the whole planet's going to burn in a couple of decades, what do we care about sustainability? It, it, these, these beliefs, and, and for people who are not religious. I, I grew up religious and then became an atheist. And so I, I get how seriously people take religion who are religious. A lot of people who grew up secular, they don't get it. You know, yeah. they say, oh, well, you know, the Middle East, it's all about oil. It's like, no, it's not. They uh, really believe this stuff 150%. It is the most important, most foundational metaphysical essence of where they plant their thinking. And uh, the fact that people believe these apocalyptic end of the world scenarios that are imminent makes 
that has them change their their perspective and thinking on things enormously. And if you're not in those communities or sympathize the degree to which it shapes their thinking, it's really hard to get just just how much it changes the way people view the world and and their place in it and the value of the future and the sustainability of the economy and the environment and so on. Yeah, if you're just waiting to for the rapture and for the end times, I, I don't I don't think you actually care about resolving like Middle East conflict or anything, I suppose, uh, that you just, you know, watching the world fall apart is, is actually not actually, um, is troublesome, I suppose, if you believe that you're just going to be lifted up to heaven, no matter what happens. Uh, well, before I forget, uh, Hanka, if you can uh, just let my listeners and, and, and watchers know if you have a website for the, the orphanage uh, that you're putting up. Oh, that's uh, I mean, I do, yeah. I do a lot of... Uh, uh, I sort of help out a lot of people overseas, but I've always found it tough to find people who want to help the less advantaged who aren't also going to give them, you know, five Bibles and a, a two-step towards superstition. Oh, that's, uh, so if you could yeah. give uh, that contact information, I'd certainly like to visit it and we could get some of our listeners to go there as oh, well. yeah, that would be great. Well, it's all at uh, brighterbrains.org, which is the website of the Brighter Brains Institute. And if you go to brighterbrains.org, you'll see a, a variety of, of little channels, but the one... The one called Bazoha Orphanage is, is the one you want to go to. And we have a, we're, we're constantly fundraising. Um, right now, we, we raise enough money for the, um, the roadside stall where we're going to sell garden food. And we have raised enough money to buy two solar panels so we can be off the grid, which is really important. And we have enough, we have a, a, a doctor uh, has put in enough money for a classroom and we raise enough money to, uh, have the, you know a, a place for the orphans to stay with the staff. So yes, if you if you want to have some orphans that aren't forced to um, just pray all day long, um, this is the place for you. Yeah, as long as you're not handing out dust capital, I'm certainly interested in, uh, <laughs> in no. helping out. No. Now the last the last thing I'd like to talk about, which is well, not the last thing, but I sort of given the constraints of the interview format. Um, what I also found, and I've read this elsewhere, but you went into it in in more detail. And this is one of these things that, you know, when, when, you, when you see it, it blows my mind with regards to sort of world history and intelligence. And that's the question of cousins and, oh, and yes. marriage. Uh -huh. Yeah, I wonder if you could explain that a little bit, because I think that is one of these things that clicks things into focus oh, in a way that is yeah. rare. I don't have all the statistics in front of me, but it, it, it seems absolutely horrible. Um, I, think, I think I've read that 70% of marriages in Pakistan are to first cousins. And it's actually worse than that sounds, because when you do that for generation after generation after generation, uh, it becomes just incredibly, incredibly inbred. And I, I think the rate of, uh, are, are you British yourself? Um, I was born in Ireland, but I grew up in England. Okay. Uh, I think the rate of birth defects in the UK right now is like overwhelmingly um, Middle Eastern, uh, although there are only a small percentage of the population there. The number of birth defects that are uh, Middle Eastern is, is just is just really huge. I, I think it's, I think it's, now I know there's reasons for cousin marriage. It's been explained to me by angry commenters, it, but it usually has to do with, uh, you know, keeping the money in the clan, keeping the money in the family, uh, a, a lot of, you know, obviously these are arranged marriages anyway. 
but yeah, no, the cousin marriage thing is is absolutely, absolutely awful. Probably like, and I think you point out in your book, if I remember this rightly, mm-hmm. this is, that it can be up to a seven point in the IQ scale degradation uh, as the result of this kind of uh, uh, these kinds of uh, yeah. breathing habits. Yeah, that's an average. Of course, you, you run the you run the risk of just uh, of a of a physical defect as well. I, I think there's right. two studies, and one was a there's one study out of uh, India, which I think is like ten and a half IQ points, and another one is about seven. So um, yeah. Um, so the fact that Christians uh, and of course uh, Jews, I think even before Christians were uh, banned uh, cousin marriages, and this again I think has something to do with long term. Again, you can't use any of this information to to evaluate any individual because we're talking about significant aggregates over time. But if you look at uh, Judaism and Christianity, the ban on uh, cousin marriage, uh, as opposed to other belief systems, uh, could explain uh, some of the di- the divergence. I don't I don't know anything about a, a a Jewish or Christian ban on cousin marriages. I I think actually in the United States, uh, you can still marry your first cousin in about half the states. I think um, no, but I th- I think that the Christianity. Uh, discouraged it fairly early on, and this mm-hmm. is sort of off. We'll put some sources in in this if we can verify it, or denials if we can't. But uh, sure. uh, my memory is that uh, the the Christians uh, discouraged cousin marriages uh, fairly early on. Right, right. But it, yeah, it's definitely a problem if you marry your first cousin for hundreds of years, just generations of, of doing that. Uh, that's that sounds just abs- That sounds just absolutely awful. Um, Not to mention that it becomes tougher to have a peaceful society if everything's clan-based. That's just sort of another... Yeah. Uh, so if you're harming intelligence and it's clan-based, uh, you're not going to get a very peaceful society right. in the long run, to say the you least. You end up with Somalia and, and these places where everybody is tied in with their their warriors. Now, Hank, don't you understand that Somalia is a libertarian? I did, I, did no, that. I saw them. Another, another question, another topic, another, another time. But. Isn't that fun? Now, is there... Um, what have you got coming up uh, on your project schedule that uh, people should keep an eye out for? Well, I have a. I'm now working for uh, the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technology as as the the managing director over there. So I'm very busy fundraising over there. In terms of brighter brains, the main thing uh, I'm working on now is setting up clinics. Uh, I don't know if you've read Peter Singer. Uh, Peter Singer writes a lot about um, effective altruism, and. Uh, I think, sorry, the only thing I know about Peter Singer is animals, um, animals. when I get people uh, yeah, calling up but demanding to know if I'm a vegetarian. Yeah. Uh, so I, I can't really talk much about his other right. philosophical books. Right. I know. He's the animal liberation guy. Uh, I don't actually read his material on that, and I, I eat meat, so I'm not a follower of Peter Singer on that. But, um, but he writes a lot on poverty and how to, uh, how to alleviate world poverty. Um, and anyway, and he thinks the most effective thing you could do is try to keep people from dying of malaria. So I'm setting up clinics there. It's a, it's a really, it's a way to feel really good at a really low price. Uh, I can set up a clinic for about $1,200 that can take care of about 150 kids and probably save about mm, one life per year. Uh, so because the salary in Uganda is, is what I pay the medics there is $500 a year. And then the rest, the, the facility is free because everybody wants this, you know, this clinic. And then the medicine is probably the biggest expense, six or $700 a year. So that's the main thing we're doing is we're setting up a couple of clinics. I want to name one after Jocelyn Elders, although nobody seems to remember her. Do you remember Jocelyn Elders? Jocelyn Elders was the Surgeon General appointed by, Clint, uh, 
Bill Clinton, who was fired for suggesting uh, for suggesting as a way to uh, prevent uh, teen pregnancy that children masturbate. Do you remember this at all? And she was she was fired. I I, I think I, I would think that that would be something that would stick in my memory. <laughs> but uh, well, it's, it's been uh, a while. Uh, she's she's an. I, have, I I don't remember her wanting to slap any any labels on teenage. Uh-huh. Um, Penises and vaginas saying lack lack of use may cause pregnancy. Or lack of abuse may cause pregnancy. Yeah. But uh, I just wow. see her, I see her as a great role model um, for African uh, for Africans. Uh, you know, being a, a doctor herself, and and also her specialty is uh, uh, AIDS prevention. So I think uh, the, you know the amount of AIDS in in uh, sub-Saharan Africa is, is huge is, is huge as well. And is not exactly helped by a lack of commitment to empirical rationality in that, you know, rape a virgin and you're oh. cured and all this kind of stuff that is just oh. horrendous. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on rape, AIDS and masturbation, uh, I feel that we should uh, wind up with the, you know, the big three hot topics that we <laughs> had a chance to discuss. So, yeah, I really want to recommend uh, certainly the book on, on raising your IQ. Uh, it jolted me out of some growing complacency about IQ and, and reminded me, of course, that we, we can really help reshape uh, things. IQ is not destiny. I mean, it's important for people to remember that. Um, some people have achieved extraordinarily great things with not really above much average IQs. Muhammad Ali, I think, had an IQ of 78 and did some fantastic things and continues to do great things with his life. So IQ is not destiny. It can be a great way of looking at very large population sets and figuring out some big trends. But um, the fact that uh, you've got a strong case to make uh, that we can work to um, prevent its degradation and work to improve uh, its expansion is great because, yeah, I mean, high IQ people, as you say in the book, they report being happier, they're healthier, they they live longer, they're more economically productive, and uh, they tend to make better decisions uh, as a whole. And we'd love to live in a world where people would vote uh, more with their brains than their <laughs> wallets or um, hearts. And so, um, yeah, uh, it's, it's um, brightbrain.org. Is that right? And uh, you brighter, can, we'll brighter put links to your books. Org. I wrote Sorry, brighter brains. And we'll, we'll put links to your books uh, on Amazon. Sorry, go ahead. I just wrote, I, a long time ago, I, I wrote another controversial essay in which I suggested that people who had higher IQ that uh, got more, got more votes I think that your that your vote correlated with your IQ as right. an incentive. Of course, I got a lot of right. hate for that, but um, uh, but uh, but yes, I'm I'm very supportive of people uh, keep. Uh, you know, I, I'm interested in uh, older people retaining their IQ as well, um, uh, and I really recommend Curiosity because a lot of times people, you know, you can't just sit around and watch whatever is on the telly all day long. And expect oh, your- to stop learning is to start dying, I think, both yeah. mentally and, uh, and spiritually. So yeah. thanks very much for your time. I hope we get a chance to, uh, to chat again. And uh, again, we'll put links to your books and uh, recommend that people check them out. And, uh, you know, thanks so much for the work that you're doing in Africa. I mean, those people need some, I think, more rational help than some of the avenues that are helping them out. So great stuff there. Okay, thank you. Thanks, thanks. Take care. Sure. Bye-bye.